Good afternoon. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. Sorry, I just checked to make sure what church it was. Um, I kind of lost my voice this weekend. It happens to me every once in a while. I don't know why, um, but it happens. And so yesterday I, I didn't go to the men's event and I didn't really do anything. I didn't talk at all to try to rest for today because uh, I got a lot to say today as usual. Uh, hopefully, I, I know some of you were praying for me. Hopefully my voice holds up. If not, we'll just end it early, and that'll be that. Um, but hopefully I can get through it, <clears throat> and God helps me. Uh, I have a friend, actually, who's a pastor. He was a pastor, and he damaged his vocal cords somehow. Uh, and he eventually had to stop being a pastor. Uh, he just could not preach anymore every week. Um, and he's still, he's an elder at the church that he goes to and stuff now. He's still a faithful guy. But you don't want to take your voice for granted. I guess that's what I'm saying, so... Uh, I'll, I'll stop talking about this random stuff, and we'll get into it. Okay, we're in 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 21. 2 Samuel 21. At Zoe, if you've been around, you know that we're not about random stuff, really. We're not about just giving my opinions about things that I saw on Twitter or whatever. Uh, we're not here to entertain, and we're not that entertaining, okay? So just want to temper your expectations here a little bit. We're basically about the Bible, simple church. We open up the scriptures week in and week out to hear from God. And we've been in a series through the books of Samuel, first and second Samuel, and we're almost done. Now, kind of as a recap, first and second Samuel, these books, they're about the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. Now, Israel has been a nation for a while. Ever since they came out of Egypt, they've been a nation, but they haven't had a king over them. God has ruled over them. They've had judges who kind of administer the nation, but they haven't been a kingdom. But the people want a king, and God gives them Saul, the king that they want. He does a bad job. So then God moves on to the man that he wants, the man after his own heart, David. And that's really the story of these books. Now, as Pastor Eric said last week, the narrative of David's rule, his reign, his administration is over as of the end of 2 Samuel 20. The record of David's kingdom is complete. But by uh, evidence of chapter 21 existing, the book isn't over. And that's because these last four chapters are an epilogue. And that, that kind of sells it short. They're, they're less of an epilogue and they're more of an evaluation of how we should think about David's kingship. And they're structured in kind of this interesting, deliberate way. So there are six separate passages. It's kind of like a sandwich. So on the outside, there are these passages about David as the covenantal leader of Israel, kind of the true definition of what it means to be king. The layer uh, inside the lettuce layer, whatever you want to call it, this layer is about David as a warrior, the guy who fights Israel's battles. And then in the middle, in the center, are two poems. And it's fitting because David is a psalmist. They called him the sweet psalmist of Israel. Two poems, kind of what it means to be king. So there are these six passages that help us kind of identify and understand what kind of king David was. So understand everything here at the end was chosen on purpose to help us make sense of everything we've seen before. Was David good or bad? Was the kingdom a success or a failure or something in between? Now we're in the first of these six passages today. So let me read for us. Uh, I'm going to read the whole thing on the get-go and you'll see that it's an interesting passage. And then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. So Second Samuel 21, starting in verse 1, we'll go to verse 14. 
Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath the Lord had, uh, because of the oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the fields by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought, them, uh, uh, he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, David, or after that, excuse me, God responded to the plea for the land. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you this afternoon and we pray that you would speak through your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak. Even through my damaged voice, God, I pray that your truth would be communicated clearly. God, and I pray for our church. I pray for those who are here. God, I pray for those who might be down, might need encouragement. God, I pray that your word, God, I pray that your word would build them up. And God, I pray for those who are apathetic in this room. God, I pray that your word, your word somehow would turn their hearts toward you. And God, I pray for those who have come here eager, God, and willing and humble, who want to hear the word of God. God, I pray that you would feed them this afternoon. God, I pray that you would nourish their souls. And I pray that your word would grow their faith in you. God, I pray that you would use this time for profit. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let me just say right off the bat that this is a puzzling passage. That's why I read it from the get-go instead of kind of opening it up as we go along, because this is a strange passage. It's puzzling. It's not an easy passage to understand. Why would this be the first story about David and his kingship? Why is this the summary? 
It doesn't say exactly when it takes place, but it definitely seems to be earlier in David's reign. So way before the recent stuff we've seen about Absalom and all that. And it has as much to do with Saul as it does about David, which is kind of weird. And the thing that happened with Saul that we read about, if you go back and check, we never read about it in 1 Samuel. It happened off screen. So there's this major thing that happened in David's kingship that had to do with Saul that we've only now, we're only now we're learning about. We didn't hear about it before. So there's that. But what makes this text so puzzling really is all the problems. And people will say, not only is this text puzzling, but it's problematic. And maybe if you're thinking theologically or ethically, or you're just trying to think about the implications of this text, this text doesn't seem to fit neatly into maybe what you know about scripture or God or the law. Why are people being punished for someone else's sins? Why are people being punished for someone else's sins, both with the famine, Israel's suffering, and then with the solution that David, the true king, accepts? Seven of Saul's sons die. Why do Saul's sons, and really his grandsons, why do they pay for Saul's blood guilt? And why does God allow this to happen? And then I would be remiss, and I feel like I just have to bring this up because it's so common. I would be remiss if I didn't say that this text is often political. Obviously political for the people during this time, this was their kingdom. But even today, this text is one of those texts that people go to when they want to talk about sins of the past. So if you hear maybe any discussions about things like reparations for slavery, they go to a text like this. This is an example. They say, look, well, I mean, that's what God does sometimes, right? So what is this passage actually saying about right and wrong or about the nature of God's justice or about what we should do when wrong things, bad things, sinful things happen? All this to say, this is a text that preachers either avoid or they come to it with an agenda. Now, unfortunately, we can't avoid it because our agenda is to preach the next passage, right? If I skip to 2 Samuel 22, you'd be like, what's going on here? Why are you skipping over the hard stuff? So it's a good thing. Okay, I think we're approaching the text from a different angle. My agenda is to unpack it, okay, to show you what the point is, not to merely solve a puzzle or to ask some difficult questions or, or to have a political bent on it. Why did the Holy Spirit inspire this text? That is our question today. What does God have for us in this passage? And if we get there, I think your questions will be answered along the way. But before we get into the first point, I have a question for you. Have you ever tried to return something at a store that you clearly used and clearly you probably shouldn't have returned? You don't have to raise your hand, but I know that there's some shameless people out here. (laughs) Have you ever done this? Bring back something that's 20 years old or something. Every store has a different return policy, but there's one store that is actually famous for having the greatest return policy of all time. You might have heard of it before. They've done news stories on it. In fact, I read a story about it. The store has an eternal 100% satisfaction guarantee. It can be as old as Adam, and you can return it if you bought it at this store. Obviously, it didn't exist back then, but if you bought it there, you could return it for any reason. Do you know what store I'm talking about? L.L. Bean. Okay, I don't know if you know L.L. Bean. It's just some company that sends you magazines or whatever. I read a story, though, about a guy named Derek who decided to tell his story, his personal testimony at L.L. Bean, as a sort of penance. That was his word. He felt so guilty. He felt like he needed to confess 
what he did. See, he had these boots that someone gave to him. He didn't even buy it. It was a gift. These boots from L.L. Bean that he loved. He lived in Maine, so he's like hiking and going in the snow and stuff. Cross-country ski boots. And he wore them for 15 years. He said he got them in 1992, and then he returned them in 2007. So through that time, he was wearing them every winter. He's like wearing like them down to the sole, right? And then he, one of them gives out. I guess it just breaks, breaks down. He just can't wear it anymore. And he knew about the L.L. Bean return policy, so he takes it to the local L.L. Bean in Maine, and he says, I would like to return these shoes. And they say, what's the problem with it? And he says, uh, they uh, are unwearable now. And he just gives it to them. They say, do you have a receipt? He says, no. He has no receipt. He has no nothing. He has no reason. And guess what they said? They said, thank you. Let me look up how much these cost now. And they cut him a check. They gave him cash. It's not even a store credit kind of thing. They gave him cash for how much those shoes cost in 2007. So he actually made money off of these shoes that he wore. Now, if it was me, and I've heard that they've moved some employees away from the return desk because they can't handle it. If it was me, I would have said, that's how shoes work, man. You can't return them. Okay, you wore them. They didn't break. You were satisfied, obviously. No, the person there said, thank you, took it, and gave him money. And Derek felt honestly terrible about it. But that's the L.L. Bean promise. And that's where we're going to start today. Okay, not with L.L. Bean per se, but with this idea of promise. We're not starting with the puzzle of this passage or the problems or the politics. We need to get to what this passage is actually about. And it's about promises. See, what's in this passage and what we see in Scripture is that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about his faithfulness. After God sent a flood, you remember this, after God sent a flood to wipe out the entire world because of the sinfulness and violence that was in the human heart, God spared Noah, and after Noah came out of the ark with his family, God made a covenant with Noah and with his family and with all creation, it says, that even though people were still just as sinful, God would never again destroy the world in this way. God made a covenant with Noah. The rainbow was a sign. God also made a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. Now, a covenant, understand, we talked about this. A covenant is an official agreement between two parties. It was kind of an ancient thing in that part of the world, usually with obligations from both sides, where I would do this, I will do this. These are the punishments if you break the covenant. But what I want to focus on is the fact that God, when he makes a covenant on his end, He is making a promise to people. He's making a promise. When God makes a covenant with someone on his end, he pledges his word to do something, to hold up his end of the bargain. And what we see in scripture again and again is that God holds up his end, even if the other person doesn't hold up their end. This is so important to God. He talks about it again and again and again, how he keeps covenant. It's why, for example, right? And sometimes we don't, put this together in our heads. For example, it's why things like marriage are talked about so much in the Bible and why the covenant of marriage is so sacred to God because covenants are sacred to God. It's why even suppose little things to us, like doing what we say we are going to do, matter so much to him. Numbers 30 verses 1 and 2 say, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. 
This is where we start. See, this passage, and we'll start picking it up now, this passage is about a king who was unfaithful to a promise. As we do, we're going to look at this text in three parts. First point, the blood guilt. The blood guilt, which is about what the old king, Saul, specifically did to break a promise and what the consequences are. Look at verse 1. Let me drink a little water first. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Okay, so real quick context. There's a famine in the land for three years. Don't skip over that. Just feel it. Okay, just think about it. Okay, we have a lot of problems. All of us have problems. Most of us don't have the problem of we can't feed our families for three years. Okay, three years is a long time to be out of bread. And this was the people of God, right? They believed that God would take care of them, provide for their needs. But for three, uh, three years, the heavens were closed, right? It wasn't raining. Crops weren't growing. There was barely any bread at all. So David, as the king, and he's a younger king at this point, he seeks the face of God. Did I do something? What's going on? Is there a problem? And he discovers that the reason for the famine is the guilt of Saul, Concerning the Gibeonites, verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So, okay, understand this, okay? This explanation is for us, not for them. No one here is asking. David didn't say, who is, who are the Gibeonites? Like, what happened? Everyone knows what happened. They knew about it. But the author gives us the details. They weren't Israelites. But Israel had sworn to be at peace with them. However, despite this covenant, Saul, for some reason, had decided to wipe them out in his zeal for Israel, it said. So maybe he was like, you guys aren't Israelites. You guys are Canaanites. We're going to just kill you right now. And clearly he succeeded in killing at least some for the text says clearly he has blood guilt on him. Verse three, and David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement? that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. Now, this is Saul's mess. Okay, I've said that. But it's David's problem. It's David's problem. David understands that as king, it's his responsibility to figure things out. That's the burden of leadership. In fact, notice at the beginning of verse 2 that he's called the king. And this is where he overlaps with Saul. Obviously, he's a different person. He didn't personally transgress, but he wears the same crown, so to speak. He sits on the same throne. He leads the same people. So he goes to the Gibeonites directly and he says, how can we make it up to you? Or more accurately, how can we make atonement? Now turn with me to the book of Numbers real quick. And we're going to flip a little bit more than usual because I want to show you these things from the word of God. Numbers 35. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. Numbers 35. Start at verse 33. Toward the end of Numbers. Numbers 35, starting in verse 33. Numbers 35, verse 33. This is God speaking. He says, you shall not pollute the the land in which you live for blood 
pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Now, this isn't an exact parallel to what Saul did, but it's pretty close. Saul shed blood in the promised land. The Gibeonites were at peace with the Israelites. It wasn't war. It wasn't self-defense. Saul shed blood upon the promised land. And God said, don't do that. Okay, the land I dwell in your midst. This is a special place and blood defiles and pollutes the land. Now turn back to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21, the word of God in Numbers is clear. Atonement must be made. When there is blood shed on the land to pollute it, blood must be spilt to cleanse it. There must be atonement. The guilt must be dealt with. However, it says there is only one way to do this. If the person who shed the blood has his blood shed. Now, what's the problem here? What's the problem? Who's the one who shed the blood? It was Saul. Where's Saul now? He's gone. Saul's dead. So you can see the dilemma, right? So David, he understands this, I think. He goes to the Gibeonites and he says, well, what can we do? Is there something that we can do to make this right? Verse 4, the Gibeonites said to him, Look, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. So they're saying, look, okay, it's not about money. Okay, that's not going to make things right. We don't want money. We're not trying to extort you or anything like that. And it's not really our right to just put any random person to death. We understand that. And then David says, well, what do you say that I shall do for you then? He's like, well, what are we going to do? Verse 5. They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Now pause here for a second and think about this. Here's a simple question with an apparently not so simple answer. What is justice according to God? Because are you, are you following what's going on here? There's a famine that affects the entire land because of something Saul did, but it happens after Saul is gone. David asked the Gibeonites what would be suitable, and they asked for the lives of seven of Saul's sons. And David, the king, God personally chose to replace Saul, the man better than Saul, quote unquote, from scripture, the man after God's own heart, he says, all right. It's Saul's fault, so why are other people paying for it? What does this say about David that he agrees? And I think most importantly, what does this say about God that this is unfolding for us in the pages of Scripture? You know, when I was a teenager, I went to this Christian youth camp, and it was either the first day or the last day, and I don't remember, but I, I know it was one of those two because all these parents were there, either dropping off or picking up their kids, and I saw my friend, I had a family friend who went to a different church and she was talking to some parents that weren't her parents. And I was like, oh, well, I'd probably go to the same church or something. Um, I didn't think anything of it until my friend started all crying, all crazy. And I had no idea why. She was really upset. Um, and I didn't find out until later that what happened was uh, there was some conflict. I'll, I'll just keep the details to a minimum. But there's some conflict among the leaders in the church and it kind of spread out uh, a little bit. And her dad was one of the pastors at this church and this family, the, these parents were hurt and angry about something maybe that her dad did. And, 
everyone was at fault here in different ways. No one was saying they were perfect. But instead of talking to her dad, they kind of took it out on her when they saw her. Now, the issue is, okay, is it right? And the issue isn't, do people do bad things or do people sin sometimes? Uh, are people guilty? Sometimes? That's not the issue, okay? Her dad was not perfect. She would even say that. But the issue is, is it right to take out your anger against the sins of the father on the daughter or on the son? We've got to ask this question because that seems to be what we're seeing here in 2 Samuel 21. A lot of people don't want to even wrestle with this question. It's a can of worms that's too crazy. But what does the word of God say? And I think we have to look at the rest of the word of God because here's a hermeneutical principle for you for free. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, okay? The, the principles of interpretation of scripture, of scripture. Here's a hermeneutical interpretation for you. Description does not equal prescription. Description is not the same thing as prescription. What that means is just because someone does it in scripture doesn't mean that we should do it. Okay, just because Judas kissed the son of man and betrayed him with a kiss, does that mean we do the same thing? Obviously not. Okay, but even when quote unquote good people do things, it doesn't mean that we should do the same thing. I tried to walk on water one time, didn't work so well. So no, I'm just kidding. Description does not equal prescription. So what does the Bible prescribe? Is David doing the right thing here? What are we supposed to make of this? Well, turn with me to Exodus 34. We're going to go a little deeper in the rabbit hole first. And then we'll try to come back up for water or for air, excuse me. Exodus 34. Second book of the Bible, 34th chapter. A very famous passage where God appears to Moses. And he tells him about himself. Exodus 34, look at verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And then listen to this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, you might have read that a hundred times, but in the context of our sermon today, it's like, what? I don't remember that part. I remember the steadfast love part and all that, but the iniquity of the fathers on the children and grandchildren, what does that mean? So if my father was a bad guy, let's say, or if my grandfather was a murderer, does that mean that I should face the death penalty now or something? Does that mean that God is going to punish me too? Hold that thought. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, 24. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, Deuteronomy is, you thought I was going to say the craziest book in the Bible. It might be, but Deuteronomy is one of the most important books of the Bible. And I don't say that in terms of every book is important, okay? You got to hear what I'm saying. But in terms of understanding how the entire Bible fits together, there are a few books more important than Deuteronomy. Okay, and how the Old Testament and New Testament work, how kind of everything, you know, all the pieces go together. Deuteronomy is probably top three. Okay, you can't get rid of it. You got to, we're getting there in about a month for the Bible reading plan if you're doing it. I know it could be hard, but just try to keep that hype alive in your mind. Okay, Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, this is what it says. And this is 
prescriptive for the people of Israel. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. The principle here is absolutely crystal clear. You pay for your own sin. So what does this mean? Does this mean that Exodus and Deuteronomy are at war, that they contradict each other? Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. This is a little bit further. If you go to kind of the center of the Bible and then go a little past that, there's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, all long books. Ezekiel 18. This whole chapter is about clarifying this issue. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. Look at verse 20. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And the point that God is making in Ezekiel is that if you walk in a way that's different than your sinful father, you won't be punished for his sin. This was the question. They said, well, my father is a bad guy. I lived in kind of a bad household, but what if I walk differently? Will I suffer? Will I suffer? Will I suffer because of his sin? And the answer is no. But the assumption is it's not an easy thing to do because if you look back at verse 14, so skip up a little bit. Ezekiel 18, verse 14. Let me go back here. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced all these things, he shall die for his iniquity. Now, we talked about this before in this series, like father, like son. Do you remember this? We've seen this as we looked at David and his sons and all his failures as a father. By nature and by nurture, the apple usually doesn't fall far from the tree. That's the natural order of things. And yes, of course, there are exceptions. And Ezekiel 18 is about those exceptions. People are saying, it looks like whole households are, are getting punished. What's going on here? Ezekiel wants to make it clear that if you do walk in righteousness, you will not suffer for other people's sin. But that's a big if, if you walk in righteousness. And this is what Exodus 34 is talking about. See, I'm not going to make you go back there, but he says, God will by no means clear the guilty. No means clear the guilty. God doesn't punish anyone who is innocent. So if you had that question, we can answer that right now. God does not punish the innocent. But what about the children? Well, by nature and by nurture, the apple usually doesn't fall far far from the tree. And we know this by our, our own experience. I think we get it. Dad was a drunk. Good chance that'll be a struggle for us too. 
Now, if you aren't a drunk, that's good. Mom was a difficult person that had a lot of interpersonal conflict. Well, maybe that's why I'm having so much interpersonal conflict now that I'm an adult, not now that I'm an adult. And we see it in our own kids, right? You see kind of your own sins played out in a miniature form when they're little. You see your own impatience. You see your own idolatries. The great Puritan commentator, Matthew Henry, he once said, God does not punish the children for their father's sins unless, and this is the key, they tread in their father's steps. God will visit the iniquity. God will punish if you walk in those same steps. Now back to 2 Samuel 21, here's the interesting thing. What does verse 1 say actually? Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now maybe Saul was the ringleader. Of course he was. He was the king. He was the head of the household. But let's not jump to conclusions here. God does not punish innocent people. The text says that the blood guilt is on them as well. And when the Bible talks about blood guilt, it's talking about people who shed blood. The house of Saul walks in Saul's iniquity. Who was with him when he was going out to battle? If you read the battles of Saul, he's always bringing his sons with him. Mephibosheth was the youngest of the grandkids. He was young, but everyone else presumably was older. Saul was always taking his family out to war. Now, we had to do a lot of work to get here, but the point is simple, as hard as it is to hear. Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. It's not just blood guilt that deserves death. Ezekiel makes that clear too. It's sin that deserves death. And we push against this. And I understand we want to talk about compassion and mercy and grace, and we should, but there needs to be a baseline of what justice is, of what right and wrong are. The truth that no one likes to hear and is usually not even talked about in church that much is that God is so holy that even one sin deserves death. And I know that this is unpopular to talk about. People either don't want to talk about sin at all, or they want to talk about sins that they know aren't going to offend the people who are actually in the pew. You know what those people out there are doing? But this is a warning for us. And I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't bring it up in 2 Samuel 21. The soul whose sins shall die, for the wages of sin is death. And it's not other sin, it's all sin. And that includes your sin and my sin. Do you fear God? Because you should. I feel like I need to warn you, you should. It's just I fear the truth is a lot of us don't. We, we don't want to bear the blame. We kind of shrug it off. We default into thinking we're pretty good people. Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, sometimes I mess up. It's why we can be so defensive. It's why it's so easy to judge others who struggle and fall into sins that we don't struggle and fall into. It's why disobedience is part and parcel of some of our lives. We constantly do things that God says not to do in his word, and we just don't care. One sin is enough. Oh, that we would just take sin more seriously. Or really, rather, that we would take God more seriously. 
Our souls belong to him. And I preach to myself, you're not going to pay for anyone else's sins. Okay, the scripture is clear on that if you do enough homework. You're not going to pay for anyone else's sins except for your own. But the scary truth is, that's more than enough. Now, this was a long point, so we'll move. Eric would have been done by now. Second point, the broken promise. The broken promise, which is about the seriousness of this particular sin. Now, okay, murder is bad. Okay, we got that. But Saul killed a lot of other people, and so did David, and there wasn't a famine. So what's up? Joshua 9. Turn with me to Joshua 9. A few books back. Joshua chapter 9. Like I said, this text is about promise, really. Joshua chapter 9, and this is where we see the Gibeonites for the first time. Look at verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, this is a throwback, this is Joshua, verse 4. They on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. Okay, so a little backstory. The Gibeonites were known to be warriors in the land. Some of the the strongest people in all of Canaan, okay, the land that Israel was taking over. Excuse me. But when Joshua showed up with Israel, even though they weren't trained warriors, it didn't matter how strong you were. Right? Like you have these impenetrable walls like Jericho. Sorry, it would be a shame if someone marched around them a few times. They just fall down. Okay, God on the Israel side meant that Israel was undefeatable. They were invincible. At this point in Joshua 9, Jericho has fallen easily. Ahai has fallen with one hiccup along the way, but Gibeon has seen the writing on the wall. So what they did was they pretended that they weren't from Canaan. They pretended that they were from far away, that they heard about Israel, and they're like, why don't we join up with you guys? They basically surrendered by cunning, but they were lying. Verse 15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So they lied, but Joshua promises. And all the leaders promise on behalf of the entire congregation that we're going to let you live. Now keep reading verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beharoth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, hear that, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. They're like, why did you make this promise? We got tricked, verse 19. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. They found out it was a lie. They had a lot of regret, but the leaders say it's too late. Okay, we made this covenant. We got to abide by it. We swore it before the Lord. He doesn't change. We have to let them live, lest wrath come upon us. And the Gibeonites lived among the Israelites from there on out. Now back to 2 Samuel 21. Look at verse 1 again. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, 
And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Saul didn't just kill people. That's not enough to cause a famine, according to Scripture. He killed people that the nation had sworn to protect. And this is important because Leviticus 26. I'm not going to make you turn there. Okay, I know some of you guys have PTSD from Leviticus. It's a good book, okay? But Leviticus 26, I'm just going to read it for you. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but hear this, walk contrary to me, this is God speaking, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And then hear this. When I break your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. He says, if you walk contrary to me, then famine will come. If you walk contrary to me, then famine will come. What did Joshua and the leaders understand? We swore this oath. We made a covenant. And if we break this covenant, then God's wrath will be upon us. How do you walk contrary to to the God who is abounding in faithfulness? You act faithlessly. You break a covenant. You know, a few years back, funny story, I knew I would share this someday, but in my old house, we were thinking about getting new windows. Our windows were really old and we wanted to sell our house. So we figure, put new windows in and then we'll get the cost back when we sell so we had the saleswoman come over. Um, I was going to say her name, but I don't know. I'm still debating. We'll see if the Holy Spirit holds me back. But she came over, and uh, she told us about the windows. And you know how salespeople are in a good way. I know some of you aren't to sales, but they kind of get to know you, and they talk a lot about stuff. And we liked her a lot. At the end of it, after talking about everything, our family, church, stuff she was into, we said, okay, we're going to get the windows. And she said, Great. And then she got all serious. And she was like, listen, when you sign up to get windows with us, it's a commitment. So I want your word. And I was like, uh, I kind of don't want it anymore. Um, but she's like, just give me your, when you sign this, a lot of people back out because they don't have integrity, but I want you to give me your word that you were going to do this. It was super weird, honestly. But we were like, okay, we need these windows. And we already spent like five hours talking to her. So Okay, so I, I signed it. I said, this is my word. I will get the windows. I got the windows, by the way. I'm a pastor. Um, but I signed off with my word. And then as she was leaving, she said, you know what? My boyfriend and I are looking for a new church. So we're going to come to your church on Sunday. Can I have one of your cards? So I gave her one of those old Zoe cards. And she said, I'll see you on Sunday. And then she drove away. And guess who I never saw again? I was going to say her name, but I'm not going to say it. She never showed. And it's hilariously ironic that she would make this whole show out of, give me your word. It's so serious, promises, et cetera, et cetera. And then I didn't even tell her. Okay, she told me, I promise, I'm going to come to your church. I'm going to come see you, blah, 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 blah. Words are meaningless to so many people. They have no meaning, but not to God. If there's one thing to know about God, it's that he's faithful. When Moses said, show me your glory, one of the things that God said was, 
I'm abounding in faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The whole point of Israel, you got to understand the whole point of Israel was not only to have a relationship with God, but to represent this faithful God to all creation. If Israel breaks covenants, what does that say as God's people to everyone else about God? See, understand that the reason Israel was suffering was because Israel had broken a covenant. The king of Israel had broken a covenant. And God doesn't let that slide. And for us, I mean, okay, for you Christians here, right? Like the name Christian, okay, we're called Christians. The name originally was pejorative. It was an insult, it means little Christ. It's like you guys think you're like little messiahs out there. You're trying to be like Jesus. People would make fun of them. And the name stuck because the name is kind of what we are supposed to be about. We are supposed to be more like Christ. We're supposed to be more conformed to his image. We're supposed to represent Jesus and who he is and his message in our lives. And there are a lot of ways we should do this with our love, with transformed lives, with holiness. But what about being faithful? You might be surprised if you do a word search in Bible Gateway for faithful in Jesus and God. What about being faithful? What about being true to your promises? This is convicting for me. You know, like kids want to play and I say, I promise I'll play with you after work or on the weekend. And I just totally forget about it. What about our promises to our spouses? What about to each other in church? What about... To God, it's crazy what some Christians say to God sometimes. Maybe you're like going through something and you say, God, if you'll get me out of this, I promise that I'll be a completely different person. I'll be at church every week. I'll be serving. I'll be giving. I'll be reading the Bible. I'll be on my knees in prayer for two hours a day. And then you get out of it and you're like, well, thanks God. And you just move on to the next thing. We sing songs to God about how our whole lives belong to him. Right? I love you. I surrender all And then we can't even surrender five minutes in the morning to read a little bit of the Bible. Now, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you, but hopefully you have a little bit of conviction. Okay, it's not about, you know, trying to do stuff. Don't get me wrong. That's important, but it's not about that. It's about, do you do what you say you're going to do? That's it. God hears what we say. The New Testament says we will give an account for every careless word that we speak. God heard what Israel said to Gibeon. And when Saul went back on it, there were consequences. Now, you might have one big question still that I haven't answered. And Joshua made the promise. Saul killed the Gibeonites. Now Israel, in the days of David, are dealing with the fallout. This leads to the third and final point. We'll do this quickly. The better king. The better king. The blood guilt, the broken promise, the better king, which is about the king and God's kingdom. One more flip. We're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel 8. James preached this passage in March of 2021 when we were all but little children. So 1 Samuel 8. But this is where they first get a king. Look at verse 4. 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. 
I always thought that that was funny. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now skip down to verse 10, 1 Samuel 8, 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to your, to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in the day you cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. They want a king. Samuel warns them. He says, are you sure you know what you're asking for? Kings, they ask a lot. And do you know what a king is? He's going to reign over you. You will belong to him. And for better or for worse, your life will be tied up with him now. If he says jump, then you all got to jump. If he wants to go to war, then it's your sons who are going to go fight. If he's hungry for some bread, your daughter is going to have to bake it. You shall be his slaves. So they think twice, right? They say, never mind. We don't want a king. No, verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Go ahead. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. They wanted a king and they got a king. And this means as the king went, so did they. Maybe they weren't thinking about this, even though Samuel just said it. They can't say it's not fair. It's not fair for us. It's not fair for us to be punished for what Saul did. They made this choice themselves. They said, wherever Saul goes, we will go. When the king broke the covenant, it was as if the entire nation broke covenant. Now, as a side note, I mentioned this the politics of this passage. People like to point to 2 Samuel 21 as an example of kind of this corporate sin idea or corporate responsibility, the the legitimacy of things like reparations for wrongs in the distant past. Now, a government is free to do what it wants to do. That's a separate issue. But in terms of biblical support, in terms of is there some type of precedent for punishing certain people or, or for calling other people into account for singular sins, you got to understand that Israel was a different kind of nation. Israel was a nation that had entrusted themselves, had given themselves, had chosen for themselves a king who would represent them in every single way. See, when they chose Saul, things were never the same. The king would always represent them. It wasn't that Joshua made a personal promise. He made an Israelite promise. And when Saul became king, Saul became the Israelite that represented all Israel. The promise was made and broken. The covenant was made and broken by the representatives of the nation. They swore it before the Lord. Now, it's a complicated issue, but you got to understand that Israel is different. Now, you might be thinking, okay, don't we have a lot of text left? We do, okay, but just hear it. Okay, just listen to it. Keep it all in mind, what I've said. 
because I think things will start to fall into place, hopefully. If not, I'll push him in there. Verse 7, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Hermoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of uh, Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa, And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish's father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Now, notice a few things. First of all, the detail. David spared Mephibosheth. We talked about him quite a bit. He was the crippled son of Jonathan, the one that David had chosen to show love to, uh, the son of his best friend. But the text goes out of its way to tell us the reason why he does this. He doesn't just do it because he likes him. What does it say? Did you catch it? Because of the oath of the Lord between them. Because he promised. And then the king allows the Gibeonites to kill seven of Saul's grandsons. Their blood is shed for the blood of the Gibeonites. And Rizpah, the mother of two of them, takes sackcloth, the clothes of mourning. And she's, obviously she's sad, okay? Her sons are dead. She takes care of the bodies of her sons and the other five. It's a heartbreaking scene, right? She's just out there protecting the bodies that, that were just hanged from the elements, from animals, just trying to preserve them in some way. And there's a sense of timing here, too. It says, at the beginning of barley harvest, they were put to death, and she stayed until the rains. Now, the barley harvest was in the springtime, like March, April, usually. The rains came in the fall, so she's there throughout the summer. She's there for months outside trying to take care of these bodies out of love, right? Out of loyal love for her own kids and for her family. And then this moves David. When David heard about this. When David saw what was happening, it says that he is moved to do something else. He sees the faithful love of Rizpah and he realizes that there's something he hasn't done. He had wept when Saul and Jonathan died. You remember this, but he had never given them a proper burial. So he goes and he gets their bones, and he gets the bones of the seven slaughtered sons, and he buries them honorably in Benjamin, in the tomb of Saul's father, Kish. Now, why is this important? It says so in the text, I think it's verse 6, that Saul was the chosen of the Lord too. That's why David never raised his hand against Saul, because he knew that Saul, for all of his sins and faults, was still the Lord's anointed. He had treated him well in life, But David realized that he hadn't treated him well in death. There was a hole in his holiness, a hole in his faithfulness. 
And did you hear it? Only after that did God respond to the plea for the land. See, you might at first think they killed the sons, atonement was made, and the rain started falling right away. Now, the seasonal markers are there. They're given to us. It was months before this happened. It was only after David acted in a faithful way towards Saul and Jonathan and Saul's house. Remember, these passages are an evaluation of David. They're not just a Saul story. We're done with Saul. This is about David. And here we see him compared to Saul for the final time. But the way he's being compared is he is better than Saul in the one way that counts. Saul broke promises. David keeps promises. Even little ones to Mephibosheth, little ones. Saul didn't care about covenants. David does care. Saul was faithless. David is faithful. Listen to me. The covenant agreement between God and Israel was the law of Moses. God said, I will bless you if you keep this law. If you disobey, I will curse you. What is the summation of the entire law? Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is summed up, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Even though Saul did not do this, even though Saul was faithless to the covenant, even to his word to David that he would spare his life and he kept killing him, kept trying to kill him, even though Saul counted him as an enemy, David loved Saul as a neighbor. David loved him as he loved himself. And that was completed when he buried this man honorably who would have left him if the roles were reversed in the gutter. And in doing so, what does the first of the six passages teach us about David? That he is a better king. He is a better king because he is a more faithful king. He is a promise-keeping, covenant-honoring king, the kind of king that God has always wanted because God is like that. But what about the atonement? See, atonement was built into the fabric of Israel's life. Every year they were to keep the day of atonement where they would offer sins for everybody. They would offer a bull. The high priest would offer a bull for himself and then he would offer a ram for everyone else. Perfect animals. That's what the sacrifices are about. Blood must be shed for sin. You must die. And hear this from Hebrews 10 for the sake of time. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They don't atone, not for good. And it makes sense. Animals cannot atone for sins. See, what we see in our passage is that blood guilt, the wages of these sins, it's death. And Saul's sons were not innocent. They died justly for their own sins. However, the solution wasn't enough. They weren't perfect sacrifices. What we see here is that it's a combination of blood and faithfulness. That's what God wants. He wants blood and faithfulness. And this combination has never, ever been found in a single person except for one. See, God made a promise to David. He made a covenant, a one-sided covenant where God alone would keep it, that David would have a son on the throne forever. 
And many of his sons, all of his sons, were faithless in their own ways until one day a son was born to a virgin in David's line. And though there was never a single drop of blood on his hands, he was perfect. He was innocent. He was faithful to the end. He bore the responsibility of king. He went to the cross to be sacrificed as a criminal. And they mocked him, forcing a crown of thorns upon his brow, bowing to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He saved others. Why doesn't he save himself? And that was exactly the point. Because for the first time and only time in history, God punished an innocent person. For Jesus Christ, the righteous, the faithful, was the propitiation for our sin. He bore the wrath and death we deserve. He became sin who knew no sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. The king died for his people. His blood, his faithful blood was shed so that faithless sinners like us could go free. The message of this passage is that David is a better king than Saul, but you got to understand that the bigger message is that Jesus is a better king than David. And I call you right now to be right with him. If you're here today, it's because God wanted you here in his sovereignty. Bend the knee to him. Give your life to Jesus. Give your life to the one who has already given his life for you. And if you aren't a Christian, that means turn to Christ. If you are a Christian, maybe it just means you need to repent of whatever it is you need to repent of. Come back to Jesus. Bow the knee. Commit to faithfulness. We'll close here. At L.L. Bean, going back here, people take advantage of this promise all the time. And it got so bad that I read that they actually changed the policy. At first, they changed it to store credit, and then they made it a one-year guarantee. Because people were bringing their 20-year-old things, and the kids were showing up in kindergarten and then returning the, the backpack every year until 12th grade. Finally, there was a limit you're saying, Pastor, are you comparing God to L.L. Bean? Only in this way. With God, there is no limit. You got to understand this. It's an eternal 100% guarantee. He is faithful and he is serious about faithfulness. And you can 100% bank on it. He said he will never leave you nor forsake you. Never doubt that. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He said that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess Don't doubt that. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you did, if you confess your sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive you. He said he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Guess what? He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. God is so faithful. And it's with this that we turn to communion right now.